welcome back to another episode of Sporting Roots. In this episode, I had the pleasure of being joined by Fraser Cartmel, who I'm sure many of you know from his days as a professional triathlete, or more recently as one of the presenters on Global Triathlon Network. Fraser started in sport as a swimmer and then made his move to triathlon after a family friend suggested he tried one out. Fraser quickly moved up through the Scottish system and qualified for his first European Championships after his first year studying chemical engineering at Harriet Watt University. Fraser spent some time racing on the Continental Cup and World Cup circuits for Great Britain before moving up to 70.3 distance and eventually full Ironman racing. Upon making the move, Fraser won his first ever 70.3 distance race and went on to become three times 70.3 champion and Ironman UK champion in 2010. In addition to that, Fraser qualified for and raced at 70.3 and Ironman World Championships multiple times. Fraser now spends his time presenting and writing for Global Triathlon Network and going on cycles that are just far too long to think about. Make sure you stay tuned with today's episode to find out more about Fraser's sporting roots, his funniest racing memories and the various crazy adventures he has recently been taking on. So we're going to start with three quick questions Mm -hmm. just to kind of get the ball rolling and set some tone for some things we might talk about. Question one, what is your go-to breakfast on race morning? Um, that would have changed as I got older. I would have always stuck with cereal as a kid. And then as I got into longer racing, I realized that the more dairy that I was having wasn't helping. So I so started to gravitate away from cereal, which I still would love to have, um, and had you know, something simple like white bread, or if I could get hold of them, bagels, that would be always perfect. Um, a little bit more calories in those and toasted if I could get them toasted if you were able to get access to the uh, the kitchen at three o'clock in the morning that was I mean you'd always have to try and do your due diligence and speak to the you know front of house or the chefs or whoever you were in the wherever you're staying you know ideally toasted um and jam and peanut butter or something like or honey or but just basically something that gave me a bit of um you know bang for my buck jam and peanut butter together or yeah. separately no 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 together oh, okay um, and then a wee bit of coffee and a wee bit of coffee. Black coffee? No, a wee bit of milk. I mean, I'm not a big fan of black coffee. So, but yeah, as I say, that was another thing I learned as I got, you know, older that I would just, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but I love a milky coffee. And I never really dawned that that wasn't particularly healthy for tummy issues that I would start to have. As So, you know, it's just a learning curve. But yeah, eventually it became just simple, white, sort of starchy, bread, bagels, something like that. Simple stuff that you could get in a supermarket or a shop if you were struggling. And um, yeah, just a wee coffee. A coffee. I mean, I would always want two or three cups in the morning, but I would restrict myself to just a half, half morning. That's quite good. Quite yeah. good self, self. No, no, I never was able to race off the back of any without any coffee, in all seriousness. So. Mm. Yeah, and I never, I never went down the whole abstinence thing and then coming back into it. I just couldn't be bothered with it. But I'm sure I probably should have tried. Question number two. What is your favourite type of video to film in your role at GTN? Well, that's a good question. Um, there's... Um, Probably, probably something that is a bit more, um, you know, linked to what racing would have felt like. So if you're doing something that was, you know, for example, that, you know, obviously the video was able to make about me racing the Kelman event was brilliant. And then subsequently that summer going and helping Mark do the same thing in Norseman and obviously just being involved in the day. And, you know, that selfishly is still inherently what was racing, but 
you know, in those instances, it wasn't the same as racing as an athlete because obviously it's a totally different and you're there for a job. But yes, those sorts of, when you're actually showing a, a beginning, a middle and an end to something is much more fun for me than, you know, nothing, nothing is absolutely wrong with the, the how-to videos and all the things that give loads of useful information, but that doesn't really excite me as much. So the, the sort of more involved, I guess what we would call feature videos, which people would, you know, the more exciting stuff, which I guess most people would say is their their thing. But um, yeah, I, I, anything that involves actually, um, yeah, a start, a middle and an end and something that isn't just um, a bit more generic. Um, I suppose that's the same as any job, isn't it? Most people don't really like the run in the mill stuff. And the last quick question to get started. What is your favorite training session? That can be from when you first started, that can be something you like to do now, anything at all. Um, so I think when I was doing short course and ITU stuff, I used to love, I wasn't particularly great at them, but I used to really like the hard, we used to do them on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I'm sure they probably still do them then in the mornings at the at the pool, the hard, um, hard threshold swims. Used to always really enjoy those, you know, something like, you know, 4100s or, you know, 5100, you know, 5150s are sort of really big sort of sessions that make you go, goodness, that's, that's tough. Um, and then as I gravitated into long course racing, I really started to enjoy um, a big break. So like a long ride with some efforts in the middle and then coming off and doing, doing a, a longer run or not always a longer run, but some sort of run off it. So, you know, something that you would really get stuck into every 10 days or so in an Ironman build was just something that makes you feel a little bit worried before you start doing it. Nice. Okay. So we always like to start with an athlete's roots, given mm. we're called sporting roots. Um, so can you talk us through your first memories of sport as a child, how you got into sport, what you were like as like a primary? Yeah, sure. So um, as a kid, we, uh, Blair and I always um, swam. So we were swimmers from a young age. We went along to our local club, Forest Bluefins. Probably I would have been six or seven and Blair's three years younger. So maybe Blair wasn't quite when I started. But yeah, from an early age, we'd go along and swim there. And um, it's just a local club that didn't have a lot of pool time. So it was never more than five or six swims a week. Um, by the time I probably got into early teens, we'd moved to a slightly bigger club in Elgin, um, which is where I think Sophia and Cam have cut their teeth. So that's quite a nice wee link um, and a little bit more pool time and um, did that through through academy up to sort of end of standard grade start of hires. But I was never any good at swimming, but I used to really enjoy doing it and the whole process of going to swimming galas and meets. We, you know, we did that, you know, all throughout the north of Scotland. And, um, you know, as I say, I was never a very good swimmer at all, but enjoyed the process. And probably when I got to 15, realized that it just wasn't any fun going and doing swims where you're never getting near your PBs and that wasn't, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't any point in it. So didn't want to stop the sessions and the training and that process. Um, and we always used to muck around on mountain bikes. We, we never had um, road bikes, but mountain biking was something that we always had fun doing with other friends in the village where we grew up. Um, so I had that background and running, I suppose you always do a bit of running at school. Um, so luckily one of mum and dad's friends just suggested, why doesn't um, Fraser try traveling? Um, and by chance, there was a mountain bike triathlon in Open, which has long since disappeared, which is a shame. Um, and that was um, the very first triathlon I did. And I remember what it was. It was April 20, 2000, uh, 1997. Goodness. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So anyway, so I did that one. I just loved it. So I remember I remember that was me getting the bug. And obviously that was fine. We could do that because I had a mountain bike. Um, but thereafter, I needed to acquire a road bike. And luckily, if, you know, another friend in, in, in town who was, um, you know, um, 
into his triathlon at the time. And you've got to remember in the sort of mid to late 90s in the northeast of Scotland, there wasn't a ton of triathlon happening. So, um, so we were fortunate there was a few people that had done triathlon because Forrest had actually had a try earlier in the 90s that had then subsequently stopped, which is a shame because I never got to do it. Um, so yeah, just I suppose right place, right time and somebody that just gave us a little bit of a nudge and, and that allowed, um, allowed me just to get the bug. So very quickly, I was then able to go and, you know, fortunately, and they're still there, but um, there's a whole series of races in the Northeast, Banff, Tariff, West Hill, Huntley, God, I forget them all now. There's, there were six or seven of them. So we just used to go and do them. And I remember after school, mum or dad, you know, often dad would be at work, but mum would drive us through to, um, I say us, because by that point, Blair was probably tagging on a little bit. And there used to be, um, I, I think they still happen, the mid midweek series races in Stonehaven. And they've got a sea pool in Stonehaven. And I used to hate it because obviously it was salt water. So you would swim a 400 meter in the sea pool and then you would jump out and ride, I can't remember, I think it was eight, eight, eight miles which seemed a long way at the time. And then you ran a four mile, which was a really long way at the time. And um, so it's funny old distances. And at that series of races quite early on, um, at the time, the national coach, which obviously was a bit of a wooly, a wooly thing, um, was um, a really inspirational guy called John O'Donovan. And he um, lived in the area and he just was watching the race and just came and chatted and said, you know, would you like to come and get a bit more involved? Um, and what that meant was the Scottish system at the time was effectively um long weekends well they weren't even long they were just friday night to sunday morning um in Aberfeldy. Yeah. so over the winter there would be three or four such camps um where the scottish sort of squad would get together and squad at the time was a collection of juniors seniors and vets which is how it was all split up at the time and and i remember the sort of first few key races that you would get involved in was um there was a home nations that was quite a big thing so you obviously had the four nations would go and race each other over a triathlon i think there might have been a duathlon but others can correct me i can't remember now and then there was another another event um that was a celtic nations which was wales northern ireland, or ireland and scotland and i remember getting involved in those and they were just great fun so they were my sort of first taste of bigger and what we call sort of international racing and that took me up to sort of start of university in 2000. so it was swimming as a child and then swimming led you into triathlon exactly. and then from there it was triathlon the whole yes way. that was the pathway yeah nice so as you mentioned so you just kind of mentioned you went to uni so you went to harriet watt to get a degree in chemical engineering when you went to university did you really plan on having a career in engineering or was it just a step of going to university did you think you would go into triathlon as your career or were you dead set focused on going into engineering after your degree? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. No, I mean, touch, I never thought for a minute I would do triathlon because I wasn't very good. Um, and, and obviously I you know, worked hard at school and got good grades and um, went to Harry Watt based on the fact that um, I remember going and looking at Bath and until I got this job, it was the only time I'd ever been to Bath. And because at the time Bath was the main triathlon centre in the UK. Um, so that was sort of a place to go and look at. And I'm really lucky in hindsight now because um, the then coach at the time, Chris Jones, who's a you know, very, very good triathlon coach and long since left, but I remember him just quite bluntly telling me, don't, don't come here if you, um, you know, effectively telling me not to come on the basis of triathlon because I wasn't good enough. You know, I wouldn't have gotten any attention. Because at the time you had Simon Lessing and all the top athletes were based there. So obviously it seemed like the dream place to go. And it did, by all accounts, have a very good um, engineering faculty. So there was a good reason to go. 
But um, that was good that I had that advice because, you know, it would have seemed like an obvious thing to do. You gravitate to the best place and therefore you'll get the best coaching. But actually he was telling me that would have not been the case. I'd have just been ignored. So, so that was useful. Um, and then I looked at Edinburgh and I remember thinking, I remember going around the King's buildings, I guess, and they were just so dank and yuck. And I thought, get me out of here. Um, and then went and looked at Herrick Watt. And at the time it was quite a bright, breezy, open campus. And it just seemed nice. Um, and they had a very sort of, um, you know, fairly, say radical but it was quite a, quite an impressive sports scholarship system at the time there wasn't really much so you know nothing like what you would think of as an american sports scholarship system but certainly then it was it was a reason for me to go um, and you got some extra help and there was a, uh, an understanding that your studies could be moved and helped around and i mean as, as my studies went on it was i was very lucky because you know somebody doing that um in the engineering department was um, quite unusual but I was really fortunate that the lecturers at the time just sort of, you know, they could have been really standoffish. And I, I'm sure had I gone, it was maybe a, a sweeping generalization, but I felt that had I gone to Edinburgh, um, there's no chance I would have been afforded the, the opportunities that I was given in Heritage Watch. You know, so for example, that very first year at university, I qualified for, you know, I was still a junior, so I did European Junior Championships and then World Junior Championships. And that all quickly fell around finals in June time. And all, most of my exams were moved, so I ended up doing most of my exams in a cupboard because, you know, they, 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 um, they fell with selection races and then probably going to the events and stuff. So, you know, they were just really amenable. Um, so it was good. It was a good place to go um, and did first, second and third year um, mixing full-time study and, and trying to do triathlon and obviously getting a bit better. And, you know, I was really lucky. Mum and Dad um, made sure that I had a, you know, an old banger of a car which got me around and I was still I, I love my sort of um, <laughs> mode of transport and as did my flatmates because it was useful there wasn't many of us actually had a car and um, but it was it was you know so useful for for me being able to be a traffic because I joined Warrender Swimming Club um, and at the time I think they swam in five different pools across the city so you know obviously to get to those pools from living on campus in first year and then subsequent various you know wherever I lived in second and third year was just wouldn't have been possible public transport so yeah, I was really lucky that I was able to swim with a good squad and swim with good swimmers and a good coach who was at the time um, happy for a triathlete to come in and swim, which, you know, was really forward thinking. You never, there was a very sort of them and us with triathlon and swimming. Um, and um, yeah, he just welcomed me into the squad and, you know, for example, let me swim freestyle and the rest of the squad would be doing backstroke or breaststroke or whatever the set was, and, you know, just happy to, to let me try and do what I needed to do. Um, so yeah, so so Edinburgh was um, was good. But to answer your question, no, I never thought I was going to be um, a triathlete. So you were like thinking, okay, I'm going to become an engineer. I don't know if I was thinking I was going to be an engineer. Um, Mum and Dad would laugh because I don't think I'd have ever been a very good engineer. I don't have very much um, practical skills. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure I would have tried to do what my um, my course mates were doing and, and, and carried on and just graduate as per normal. But I decided I wanted a break between third and fourth year. So I took a time. By that point, Sterling had become a, in an actual centre and that was approaching the, um, the first Commonwealth Games in Manchester in 2002. Now, I was never going to had any aspirations of going there because I was still too young and not good enough. But we then got our first proper national position with Darren Smith coming in and coaching from the end after the Sydney Olympics. So from the end of 2000, he was in post in Sterling, you know, the very first um, incarnation of what we still have. So there was, there was a lot of drive from him to... You know, if, you know, bluntly, if you wanted to be any good, you needed to be training in Sterling. So, so I did, so I moved. As a young athlete, was there a certain 
athlete or a person who you looked up to and kind of saw as a role model? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I suppose um, you're getting into triathlon and, and, and I, I still vividly remember before I went to university, so the Sydney Games, staying up in the middle of the night for us to watch the triathlon or getting up in the middle of the night to watch the, um, um, the, 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 the races. Um, and you know, obviously having bought magazines and things through the end of school and started to get into triathlon and, and following all the stars of the sport, you know, was very, very taken by the likes of <clears throat> when I started racing, Spencer Smith and Simon Lessing had, had a huge rivalry. Um, well, it was portrayed as a huge rivalry in the media. I'm not sure it really was, but they were fantastic athletes. And it was really, um, I suppose, being able to see those guys do a sport that then got to the Olympic Games. And by that point, Spencer Smith hadn't gone to the Olympic Games, but Simon Lessing had. I always remember following those, those guys and thinking, goodness, isn't you know this sport just seems super cool um um i wasn't so drawn into you know i didn't know about athletes in other parts of the world as much or you know the likes of dave scott or mark allen who obviously still quite famous at that time but no the, the british athletes i suppose i was yeah interested in and, and and you know whether they were role models or not i'm not so sure but i was definitely aware of them as superstars in the sport and you mentioned <clears throat> A moment ago that you qualified for racing at Europeans at the end of first year of university. Was that something that you were expecting? Was that something you'd seen coming or was that kind of quite out of the blue at the time? Oh goodness, I mean <clears throat> looking back I was obviously destined, you know, that would have been a great great goal um, and at that point junior age groups were different. It was under 20 and you raced over an Olympic distance. Okay. So that got changed um, the next year because I missed it. So I, in theory, that was my year to get used to it and then maybe do, you know, quote unquote, quite well the following year, which would have been 20. Um, but that's when the, um, the age groups got changed and it became 19 and under and then sprint distance. So from 2001 to 2002 was when that changed and then the under 23 category was created. Okay. So that in theory should have been good for me because you had this whole new category, but actually I missed out my last year of a junior. Um, so I remember that was, um, it was good that I managed to qualify for those races the year before because at least I got an opportunity. But I mean, it was dreadful. I mean, I was like, you know, I was last, but I wasn't, I wasn't competitive. So it was, they were brilliant experiences. And the Europeans were in Carlsbad and Czech Republic and the worlds were in Edmonton and Canada and loved them. They were brilliant, brilliant um, experiences. Um, and obviously fueled me to keep wanting to keep, you know, you know, you, once you got into that system, the ITU, obviously it's no different now, um, but you just wanted to make, one team and then you hadn't you know then what's next and what's happening next year and, but then i fell into sort of a two or three year period because then i wasn't good enough as this you know this new under 23 category was um you know the depth was much deeper than i was able to so it took me to the end of that under 23 period to be able to make teams again which wasn't until 2004 2005. and is that when you kind of realized that going pro was a realistic option and something that you were going to set your mind to or did it take a wee bit longer for that to come in yeah i don't think you, know, you never thought of it as going pro because when you're in the midst of, of itu racing it's just just racing for the sake of racing and trying to make teams and do as well as you can so um as i said i took that year out to go to sterling off the you know heavily influenced by darren and you know he was very blunt he would just say well if, you, if you're committed to trying to be good enough at the sport then you'll be you'll be training full-time um, and you know there was you know, a small but good squad now starting to form in Sterling at that point and um, you know you had older athletes to kind of look up to and train with and aspire to and um, 
and you know very quickly one year disappeared and it was clear that well I've either got to go back to university and that'll be that and as I said I hadn't made any of these teams because it was you know I wasn't really that good and it was more competitive than I probably anticipated so I remember Darren saying to me well you probably just need to take another year out <laughs> and I remember going back to university and saying well is that okay and they said well are you coming back <laughs> um, so yeah so that's quickly became two years away from from university which probably was, you know, did mean that I, I then had this, you know, 24 months of full-time training with a coach and amongst other athletes and, you know, all, you know, a large time here in Sterling, but that's when we started going away to train a lot in Spain um, in Aguilas and that has, you know, gone on to become a, not so much recently, but for, for years and years, we went back and trained there. Um, so we started the whole process of just learning how to be, that's kind of when you learned how to be what I suppose you could call a professional athlete you know, living out of a suitcase, going away, fending for yourself, figuring out travel, just stuff, stuff that isn't, you know, you weren't molly called and looked after by squads or, or, or by um, national federations and stuff. And, and that was something that we were always, it was drummed into us by Darren, which, you know, didn't suit everybody. It was kind of sink or swim stuff. But um, yeah, by 2005, I had then managed to qualify for under 23 teams and sort of established myself a bit better. And then by that point, was able to go back to, to finish the degree. And so you've mentioned a couple times the move to Sterling and that was obviously quite influential in your training and kind of moving moving up slightly. How did that whole move come about? Was was it just Darren had mentioned, oh, you should come to Sterling? Probably. I mean, I can't really remember, but it was definitely a case of it wasn't working in, in Edinburgh. The, 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 you know, darting around to five different swimming pools and trying to train on your own and having no squad and, you know, and, and, and all the while there was a squad building here, there was a coach here, there was a, a pool that had just been built. Remember that pool just got built in 2002. So you suddenly had all these facilities that were never there before. Um, you know, we used to swim in the old swimming pool that was where the gym is now. I always remember we used to have to walk upstairs to get to the swimming pool, which is still one of the only swimming pools I've ever had to do that in, which was a bit weird. Um, so yeah, so you suddenly had all these new facilities that were you know really good. The new track got laid. It wasn't a tartan track anymore, uh, a cinder track anymore. So um, yeah, there was just a lot of reasons to come to Sterling. So um, um, and as I say, yeah, there was there was a national full time coach who was you know very driven and you know uh, you know certainly a huge inspiration for me and you know other you know he was you know very marmite a lot of people didn't like him and lots of times i didn't like him but you know you you just um trusted that you could hopefully you know you become you're becoming selfish that's what you are as, a, as an athlete so you want to become better so if there's some possible chance that doing that makes you be better than and you're and i was lucky that i was able to do it so and do you think that taking the time off university and being able to focus full time on your training do you think that had a big impact on you moving, like progressing quite quickly. Yeah, no, I'm sure had I had I just followed normal studying patterns. Yeah, I wouldn't have made the step up. So looking back at your career, is there a specific period of time that you cherish the most? Or is there anything that you would maybe do differently? Um. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I am, I'm, I'm really, really very lucky in all, you know, the, the people I've been able to train with and train alongside, um, and then the places I've been able to go because of triathlon, and virtually everywhere that I have visited has been, you know, driven by triathlon. So, you know, hugely fortunate in that. But, um, you know, I'm, I, you know, I've kind of got surrogate families all over the world, and I'm really lucky to have that because, you know, as I, as I moved into, you know, not from the short course racing. 
um, you know, that's very much just going away for a weekend and coming back and going and staying and, you know, doing a race and leaving. But once I started doing long course racing, you, you know, you then went to train in places and stay there for prolonged periods of time. And, um, and, and especially once I started racing in, in America a lot more, there was, you know, um, the, the, the homestaying is a huge thing in America, which is great fun. So you literally get welcomed into families and, um, you know, there's you know two or three that, you know, I'm sure if I was, you know, you know obviously travel at the moment is not particularly easy, but should you be able to jump on a plane tomorrow and go somewhere and I phone somebody up and said, can I come? Then I'm pretty sure the answer would always be yes, which is, you know, which is lovely. Um, and, you know, that's, that's one of the really nice things about the sport is, that you get that um, and that's not I, I imagine something that's easy to be exposed to in other walks or as easy as to be exposed to in other walks of life um, and then um, yeah obviously the, the places you're able to visit or certainly the places I was lucky enough to visit certainly um, you know in sort of stand out and then um, I think um, to, to narrow it down to one would be a bit difficult though I'm lucky you know I, that, yeah there's you know there's there's a few places that will always be really fond and do you have a funniest or strangest racing memory? Oh, there would be a few. I should have done. So. I should have thought about that before we, we went on air. Um, I remember one of my very first international races where we went away to a race in the north of France, somewhere in Brittany, and that would have been like 2000 or 2001. And there was like a motley crew of us all went out to try and do a European Cup. And we were so far out of our depth, it wasn't even funny. Um, and um, and this was all in the drive towards athletes trying to get to go to Manchester. And I was just coming along for the experience. I mean, that was never really a, a goal of mine, or not a realistic one. And there was, um, um, it was the very first European Cup race I did, and it was a place called Plurmel, I'll always remember the name because um, it was just the hardest thing I'd ever done because I'd never raced at a senior level before, and it was a senior race, and it was Olympic distance, and it was, I remember it being really hot and I wasn't used to that and then um, I was in such a state leaving the, the 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 ride and going through T2 that I completely forgot to take my helmet off um, and I've never done that obviously ever since but I had to and then I remember being petrified that if I dumped my helmet somewhere on course I would get disqualified for you know not that littering was a thing that you were discussing but it just seemed obvious that that wasn't what I was allowed to do because I left T2 so I remember having to run whether it was two and a half k or three point three k, you know, a whole lap in this sweltering heat with a stupid helmet on my head, and that, you know, it wasn't particularly stupid, but it was definitely something that you know, I, I remember, which was um, which was a bit strange. There was another one once as well that I um, perhaps was it wasn't as funny at the time because I was trying, you know, it was a bit more serious and it was actually there to do well. Um, I was racing in um, Malibu, and it's uh, an Olympic distance race. It's quite, it was quite a very fate was a famous race. It's not quite as famous anymore as it was, but. Um, I had raced it the year before and come back to race it again and um, luckily Blair, Blair was there um, to watch and, um, and, and completely randomly another very good Scottish athlete Richie Nichols, he had been racing in the US at the time and, and, and Richie as he was wont to do just suddenly decided to come to California because I was in California, I can't remember where he'd been the previous weekend but it, it was in California. So Richie had come along just to watch and um, I remember standing on the beach in the morning and chatting to Richie and Blair was beside and it was all quite relaxed. And, I remember Blair looking at me and saying, um, where's everybody else? And I was like, that's a good point. Where is everybody else? Um, and um, I thought I was at the start, but I was actually at the finish because it was a point-to-point -point swim. And it was a mile point. It was an Olympic distance race. So I literally it was a mile at the wrong end of the beach. 
and you know, I can't remember, maybe five or six, it can't have been five or six minutes because I made, I, so I obviously had to like sprint and it was embarrassing because I'd done the race the year before and it was exactly the same race. And I remember Richie just, he, he, he was in fits of laughter because obviously he wasn't racing and he just thought this was hilarious and, and I didn't think it was hilarious um, because obviously it was embarrassing. So I remember having to, you know, completely leg it down the beach. Um, very famous Zuma Beach in, in, in Malibu, but yeah, made the swim and managed to um, finish the race. But yeah, that wasn't that wasn't something I'm very proud of. You made the start though. No, I did. I did. I did. Yeah. That must have been quite stressful. Yeah. No, I remember getting there to and obviously trying to and I and I think my wetsuit was only up to my waist. So obviously you try you know sprinting a mile, suddenly sweating, and you know, we all know we're trying to put a wetsuit on when you're not dry as you know. So yeah, all the while Richie was following me, literally. Chuckling away like this was the most funny thing he'd come across. So, Which wouldn't um, have helped with the stress. No, 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 not at all. I think he got some few, a few choice words. No, he definitely did. Yeah. Um, so you obviously started out your career doing short course racing and on the European circuit. At what point did you make the decision to kind of move up the distances and leave short course racing behind? Um, because I didn't get to go to the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. So um, that was certainly a focus by 2006 and there was three of, you know, a, a team of three hopefully would have gone and myself, Andrew Fargus and Richard Allen would, should all have called, well, I say should, that's I shouldn't say should, we would have hoped to have qualified but at the time there was only a female team got sent, um, so that was that. So There was only a female team got sent to the Games? For, for Scotland, yeah. Yeah. Well, Katrina and Kerry were legitimately world-class athletes at the time, so absolutely, and, and we had, you know, a, a particularly difficult, you had to you know, as will still be the case, prove top eight potential, which in Commonwealth Games is actually really quite difficult, no matter how capable an athlete you might be. So, um, so yes, so there was no males on the Scotland, which was a shame. And then we knew, obviously, Delhi was the next Games and that wouldn't have a triathlon in it. So so that was, you know, I was never good enough to go to the Olympic Games, but, but Commonwealth Games was an obvious goal. So, And it would have been a nice way to finish off doing short course racing. And by that point, I was doing... I was doing okay. I'd raced in various parts of the world, chasing European and Asian and whatever other cups to sort of level down below World Cup because obviously back then we didn't have the WTS or WTCS. Um, so, you know, the top level of racing was World Cup and I wasn't quite good enough to, to regularly make starts because the standard of British racing was so strong as it's always been. Um, so we, we had to prove that we could be podium in a European Cup to, or a, 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 a Continental Cup um, to to get started a World Cup and I, I just you know I had fourths and fifths three or four times which you know wasn't good enough and good results but not good enough so I finally got a third place in Copenhagen that summer um, which allowed me to start doing a few World Cups at the end of that year but um, you know I didn't race very well I was just I was just taking part um, and then um, our national coach at the time was John Dargy and I remember John just you know thankfully suggesting why don't you give some long course racing a go. Um, so I actually did a half Ironman distance that was in Lisbon, which is still a race and is now, I think it's a challenge race still. So I did that race and it was fun. There was a few folk from Sterling Triathlon Club, um, Graham, and I think, oh goodness, I think Colin Adam, I think there was two or three people there and um, that was a brilliant trip. And um, I did well, I was fourth place. And then my first 70.3 was about six weeks later, which was then the UK 70.3 mobile ball and managed to win it. So, so obviously that just made me think, well, I'm, I guess I can give this a go. Um, Darren had, had since left Triathlon Scotland a year and a half previous but had then set up his own training group which went on to become the training group that had a lot of success um, so he started that training group off that summer so I remember driving to Wimbledon packed up Blair and I drove down and then Blair watched me race Blair flew home and I then kept driving to Davos which was where Darren had a camp that whole summer and oh. then did a, I did a sort of 
training camp in Davos. And was that kind of you hooked then, okay, I'm going to stay at the longer distances, mm, yeah, this is so. what we're going to do? I still race quite a lot of short course. There was a lot of short, I, was, I, I raced French Grand Prix, um, I had been doing that for a long time, loved doing French Grand Prix races, they were a bunch of fun and you got a lot from those types of racing and, and um, you know, it was, um, you know, loads of fun memories from those races too. So I kept doing them till about 2008, but I just started doing more and more 70.3s. And then when you started doing the 70.3s, did you also start doing Ironman's like full distance races at the same time? Or did you take a while to build up to that as well? Yeah, it's a good story. So I, I did take a little while to build up and then I got a bit, well, I did get a bit coggy because um, I was doing well and I'd won a few or one, two or three and I'd got some good results. And then 2008, <clears throat> again, there was a few folk from Stirling were going down to Sherborne, which was the location of Ironman UK. And um, I had won the half Ironman UK and I thought well, it would be fun to try and win both. Um, so went down to Sherborne and had a great race until I didn't have a great race. And um, so about halfway through the run, what should have happened did happen because I hadn't trained for it properly. Um, and you know, folk had been, I, I was lucky that summer, the, the Olympics were 2008. I was, um, uh, by that point I'd started spending quite a bit of time in South Africa and I'd become good friends and still am with Tim Don. And I remember training with Tim, he, um, his final, the final prep for Beijing Olympics. I'd been spending a lot of time training with him and um, the British camp then, the team then went on to um, a Korean island, Jeju. Jeju Island is where they use for Beijing. And um, and I could have gone there with Tim to do, but I remember Tim saying, well, there's just no point. You're just going to spend three weeks sweltering in the heat. Wasn't going to do me any good. I'd helped him as much as I could just as a, a training buddy that summer. We'd been in various places that British Triathlon had for training camps for them to get ready. And um, so I remember him saying to me, you're not going to go, because I sort of hinted that I might like to try. And I remember him sort of looking at me as if I was, and, and um, the, the coach at the time, Ben Bright, also saying, that's, that's lunacy, why would you do that? But of course, I thought I knew better and went off to do um, uh, Sherborne and yeah, was walking by halfway through the, and just pulled out, which wasn't, you know, looking back on it, it wasn't great to pull out of the fur, but it was, it was a good learning experience. So left it for a couple of seasons before I went back to do what I think of, and it's not, you know, technically my first Ironman was that one, which was the DNF, but then my first proper prepared attempt at Ironman was, was the one that I won, Ironman UK. And did you just use that first one that you don't count? Did you then look back on that as an experience, like a learning yeah. experience? And did you do a lot of reflection on that before you went to the next one? So Probably could... not, no, I don't think I did. I just think I realised I was a bit silly and shouldn't have done it and needed to train harder and more specifically for Ironman, which is, you know, what you, you know, it's not rocket science. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's pretty simple stuff you need to know. And I was just a bit too sure of myself and, you know, not listening to people who were giving me good advice. So, um, but you know, it was fine. I didn't injure myself and, you know, Sherborne's a nice place. But you obviously got this, the training right the second time round to go out and Yeah, win. no, 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 absolutely. By 2010, I was racing really well and it was, it was, it was a um, fantastic experience to, you know, it was, you know, you look back on it and realize at the time it was one of those things you wish you could bottle and do time and time again. And I tried, but it never happened again. So looking back on your career again, so looking back short course, 70.3 full distance racing, did you ever struggle with any setbacks? So like injuries or any other setbacks that you faced and how did you kind of overcome that? Did you have a, a process to tackle any challenges that you faced? Um, so I'm really fortunate. Touchwood, I have never had a bad injury. So 
quite a sturdy sole, don't have a, a, a frame that's kind of conditioned to breaking down, which I'm lucky. So I never got any stress fractures or any real problems, never twisted an ankle badly or any, just the usual shoulder injuries in the pool or just the usual stuff that people, you know, I had a few bike crashes, but thankfully none of them were nasty, nasty. So, you know, I was always, always lucky in that regard. It was quite, I suppose you could say bulletproof. And probably that's why I started to do well the longer the distance went. But from a, from a sort of, health generally point of view i had these sort of three or have had sort of two to three major sort of mental health dips in life and the first one was when i was at university and i didn't really understand what was happening um and that was 2003 and obviously the whole time triathlon was was a huge part of my life but it then became very hard to see how i could get back into the sport because it was just you know such a you know poor you know you just can't see the wood for the trees um, and in that instance, that was, I remember it was in 2003, just when I decided to take a year out from university. Um, and we had this big training camp planned with Darren to go to France for the whole summer. There was a few of us, I say, I can't remember how many, maybe 10 of us. And he had arranged um, a big sort of chalet. He got in touch with a, a club in a place called Gerbemer, which is a beautiful part in the um, sort of Alsace. Um, can't remember the other name part of France, but anyway, the north in the northeast of France and near the sort of Swiss German border, and um, um, Alsace and Lorraine. That's it, like the quiche. Um, and um, we were there all summer, and that's where Ironman France used to be before it was in Nice. So that's kind of how we'd find the link. He'd done a bit of digging around and thought this looks like a nice venue because it's obviously where they do an Ironman, and it was. It was a beautiful place, and we went and spent the whole summer there. Um, and it was brilliant once I was there, but I I had a real wobble and assumed I wasn't going to go. And long story short, Darren basically insisted that I come, and um, and you know basically a lot of tough love for the first two or three weeks when I was there, and just basically nursed me through sessions and stuff that I wasn't willing to do because obviously mentally I just thought I can't and didn't want to and anyway so that was a, a and then you know we were there I think 12 12 weeks we were there a long time and by the end of it I you know starting that trip there was no way I could do a training session let alone a race and then by the time I finished it thankfully um we were doing European cups and racing and I remember we had a great trip to a race in Lausanne um, we all went down to drove to Lausanne which wasn't too far away and and raced on the course that they did the um, the grand final a couple of seasons ago, which was which was great fun. So that was sort of this um, this this brilliant sort of from you know three month period of going from pretty 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 low to not wanting to probably do the sport to thankfully managing to um, get right back into it and and um, enjoying it again. And then everything was fine, and then that carried on. You know everything else sort of fell into place, moved to Sterling, and forgot about it. And then it all came crashing back down again when I had this really good season in 2010 and I had won this Ironman and I'd done well in other races. And then there was a sort of only pressure from myself to do well um, when I qualified for Ironman Hawaii, um, which was silly because obviously Ironman Hawaii is a race that takes years and years to, to conquer. Um, but I assumed that I, or I felt like I should be able to go there and be competitive because I'd been competitive against plenty of the athletes on the start list and races that had done well at that that season so I was creating all this pressure that wasn't needed and you know just and I wasn't able to cope with it um so yeah so I had that sort of was a dip um and took a long time to climb back out of it um and I think as I say you know um having a coach that was really able to to deal with it and you know perhaps it wouldn't other people might not have responded well to it and luckily I did it was quite a tough love um way of operating and then Fast forward, the same had happened in 2010, and I had worked all the success I had had with long course racing was being coached by Gordon, and Gordon had you know got me all the way through there and qualified to Kona and done all of that, and um, and you know then you know as as lots of 
athlete coach relationships do that reached you know natural conclusion and and i wasn't obviously in a good spot anyway and by that point i'd been training in south africa every winter and the natural thing was just to go back to south africa because that would make it all right and um, but it was it was a dreadful thing to do because i just basically became a hermit i just went and rented up you know and, and i was in a fortune position because it started to do well so i could afford to stay in a nice place and just was living on my own rather than all the previous times we'd been there we'd be bunking up and sharing with three or four other athletes so it was a really sort of bad situation to be in because it was you know literally the other side of the world and um you know you're around friends and other athletes but you know they're all selfish athletes too getting on with their own stuff and they'll do their best you know i remember being knocked on the door at 5 30 in the morning for athlete you know to come and give me a lift to go swimming and obviously you just ignore it so so yeah that was a pretty you know not much fun um situation to be in and then started being coached by um ben bright that's sort of by that spring um and um um luckily that was just another sort of pivotal sort of six to eight weeks of training with with that coach and a couple of the athletes he had at the time that just managed to kick start and get me back into a good frame of mind um and then one thing started falling into another and almost as quickly as you had fallen into it you'd gotten out of it except there'd been like this horrible eight month period in between that just been you know rather forgetful times yeah exactly so so yeah so i suppose no you know yeah no nasty injuries but definitely issues that you know need to be dealt with or thought about and you know i didn't you know coping mechanisms weren't there and didn't learn um from the first time and then when it happened the second time you're like well that'll be okay i'll cope with it or it's done now and i'll park it and then i won't have to think about it so um yeah i think i think essentially it's just something that's you know, i'm quite happy to talk about it but it's not it's it's a lot more prevalent in in, in sport full stop um, I can't speak for other sports specifically, but you know we all know it's an issue, and certainly in long course triathlon, it's definitely an issue that a lot of people keep bubbling underneath. And um, you know, I very recently put a post on on social media that I didn't really think too much about posting, but I got a, a sort of wave of of of, um, of um, replies and people just sort of suggesting that it was a really nice thing to talk about, just because it normalizes things a little bit. So, um, so yeah, I think that's something that's um, you know just ever present, probably, or I have to just accept for me, it's just something that. I'll, needs to be dealt with every decade or so and I think starting the conversation mm. is such a big a big step like like you said just normalizing this so that if athletes are struggling they can maybe find the courage to speak up is so important sure and and obviously some people can't and and I fully accept that and other people can't um find it very hard to discuss it or listen to because they just don't get it and that's the thing that's difficult about mental health you cannot see it like you can see a broken leg and it's you know that's pretty much in it and I, and I fully get that so it's 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 no surprise that um a lot of people struggle to talk about it because well, it's something that gets squashed in, in society anyway so Absolutely. um anyway hopefully that's something that can be um, a bit more easy to discuss in time yeah we hope mm. so throughout your career you've mentioned you had a couple of different coaches who helped you through various different phases of your career did you ever find a specific training group that you found really worked for you or did you prefer kind of training on your own or just training with whoever was around? Did you have a preference? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I'm again, really lucky that I've been, I mean, this, I suppose always the group that's been here in Sterling, you know, that changed and had, you know, over time there was lots of flux and comings and going as, as happens with life. but. You know, loads of fond memories of, of training in Stirling and around Stirling from, you know, 2003 to 2018, on and off. Various coaches, various squads, you know, but always the same centre. 
Um, and then, you know, as I say, I'm really lucky to get to go and spend lots of time in Stellenbosch in South Africa for a few winters in a row. And there was always a core group of us who gravitate there. Um, and, and, and that was that was a really nice, um, um, uh, you know, like magnet. You would go back there because you knew you were going to get that that training effect. And it was a bit addictive, really, because you hope, I mean, obviously it doesn't always work, but for two or three years it did. And that was good. Um, and then like lots of things that peters out, people start doing different things. People get married, have children, and then the group sort of just fragments. Um, and then, um, and laterally, I did a lot of stuff on my own. Just sort of, just circumstances. It was, wasn't because I'd become somebody who didn't want to train with others. It just, you know, you get a bit older and as I say, other people start, you know, um, doing things on their own too and, and got quite used to doing stuff on my own too and, and enjoying it. Um, so the last few Ironmans I trained for and then probably the last two seasons of racing, was mostly just here in Sterling, you know. Lucky that I could always dip in and out of the swimming squad that was that, that was there, and I was lucky that I was allowed access to that because that was great. I don't think I could ever swim on my own. I always need a group for swimming, um, but the biking and running was more than happy to to do my own. So you can almost kind of work really well in a group and work really well in your Hope own. Hope so. <laughs> yeah, I think so. No, I, I used to enjoy doing. Have, yeah, one or the other was was always nice. Yeah, and swimming on your own is just no, horrific. it's no fun. No, it's, it's not no the fun. one. Um. So last kind of question on this wee section, what is the biggest piece of advice that you would give to first year of university Fraser? Oh, um, um, yeah, probably just not trying to do too much, you know, bite off more than you can chew because it's, you know, you, you think you can do, you think you're indestructible, you can do a ton of different things and yeah, simple. Yeah. Just, just do what you can cope with and Don't there's plenty of time down the line. Yeah. So I want to move on a wee bit into kind of the end of your career, retirement into GTN. So you were quite fortunate in that you finished up elite racing and almost headed straight in to Global Triathlon Network. How did that whole situation come about? Uh, just luck, like right place at the right time. Um, I hadn't planned to do it. I had no interest in, well, no, I shouldn't say no interest. I hadn't any direct interest in media or um, wanting to do it. Um, I, you know, I'd start reaching out to my old tutors at Herit Watt to think, well, is there any chance I can use that degree? And obviously there wasn't because I'd never been to the industry. Um, so, you know, I was exploring maybe doing masters and I didn't really want to do that. But obviously that was maybe an option. So I'd been, you know, looking into you know, a few different options, but I knew 2018 I wasn't racing anymore. I was, you know, I'd, I'd you know, quite happy to stop and was happy um, with everything I'd achieved. And then, yeah, just um, got a call because they were looking for another presenter and I think they'd looked for about five or six other other presenters before me, so they, I was probably fortunate that none of them could um, move to Bath or the various um, uh, sort of stipulations that were required to get the job. So um, yeah, I just um, went down and had a week sort of trial and gave it a go and enjoyed it and thought, well, why not? Um, and you spent so many years having that focus of being an elite athlete. Was letting go of the structure, the schedule, all the training hours, something that you struggled with transitioning kind of away from elite sport and into that newer job? Um, I didn't think I struggled with it, but I think I probably did. Um, so just the routine, not having that routine of training twice, three times a day. Um, you know, and I've got lots of pals who have left the sport and literally never swam a length in the pool other than maybe with their kids when they're born or something but you know it never you know and I and I knew that I needed to carry on having you know also partly that job there was a very obvious requirement to still be able to do the sport you know you can joke about it all you want but I needed to be able to carry on being relatively fit and um, but I wanted to be anyway so um so no that structure was um 
difficult to let go of in so much as I needed to do training in the evening and in the morning pretty much every day, which was silly because then obviously I added in starting to have a full-time job for the first time ever. So it got, I, yeah, I definitely burnt myself out quite quick. Yeah, that's quite a lot to take on all at once. Mm, yeah, it was silly, but, I, you know, you just think you can do it. And so then what has your retirement taught you about your relationship with sport then? Oh, definitely that I can't, I, I mean, it'll always be there, you know, whether it doesn't have to be competitive sport, I'm quite happy with that. And, you know, I don't, if something comes along that I want to do, then great. But I mean, I, I mean I've more than ticked that box, that's done. Um, you know, I, I've, I've no regrets in so much as what I managed to do more than I ever assumed I'd ever managed to do. So that's fine. Um, but I definitely want to keep, I wouldn't be able to just stop doing sport. Um, you know, assuming everything else in life is fine and going well, it, it should definitely be just another part of my life. Something you're always, Hope you so. can always see yourself doing. Mm. And so on that note, do you have any races planned for the summer? Well, I have, <laughs> no, I have entered one and there's another one that will probably get entered. So um, a good pal of mine from years ago, I mentioned Andrew Fargus, who I've always kept in touch with. He raced for Scotland in the Manchester Commonwealth Games and um, yeah, I trained with him lots in a, in a former life. And he has... You know, he's an incredible athlete in his own right. He, you know, finished racing and then went to and still works in, in London, um, in the city, as they say. And he um, he's, you know, done loads of multi stage day, uh, multi stage races like the Math and Sable. In fact, when he did his first attempt at it, he did at the time the fastest uh, or the best British performance. So I think he came 11th in 2013, which has since been beaten by a British athlete, but you know, a very, very talented athlete. So he um, goes up and down in, in, in so much as his uh, goals. And um, I then had a phone call out of the blue from him. We don't keep in touch that often, but in 2016, he phoned me up to say that he needed a partner for Otolo, the World Championship swim run event in um, Sweden. And I knew he was training for it, and I knew he had a partner, Richard Stannard, who most people I'm sure will have heard of, um, but Richard had ruptured his Achilles or basically couldn't race with about six weeks notice. And I remember Andrew phoning me up and saying, and I knew as soon as, because he never phoned me, I knew that was what was coming. Um, and um, and he just said, well, can you do it? And I said, well, probably not. And he said, well, if you don't do it with me, I can. I said, well, that sucks. So I did think, give it a proper thought. And I was training for Ironman Wales, which was going to be two weeks after Otolo. And I was like, well, how hard can it be? If I'm training for an Ironman, surely I can do it. Um, so I, And I was aware that he, you know, he put a lot of time into training for it. And he um, was going to miss out and I thought well okay and I was racing for the, at the time for a team an Austrian based triathlon team and I knew that they wouldn't be very happy with me suddenly deciding to do a random swim run. Otolo has become a much bigger thing since but even four or five years ago it was quite a niche thing so I didn't tell them I was doing it and we went off and did it and it's still one of the hardest I'm pretty sure it's the hardest race I've ever done but partly because I wasn't prepped for it because mm -hmm. I, I naively assumed because I was training for an Ironman and I was very fit but I wasn't swim run fit so long story short, I mean, Andrew was super patient with me all day. And I remember, you know, it's the only really team oriented thing I've yet done. Um, loved it. Um, definitely one of those random things that um, I would go back and do if I was given the opportunity. Um, and um, yeah, we had a brilliant, yeah, we, we, one of those, we started off, we led the very first swim because we were both good swimmers and it's not really a swimming, you know, competitive type thing. And then I remember getting onto the very first rocky run and everything just changed all these, these like, like, like mountain goats just came streaming past us and i remember thinking what is going on here we're quite good runners i thought and um, but but neither i mean andrew better than me but i just couldn't cope with very wet and rocky and it was just 
had no experience of that type of stuff. So we went way back through the field. I think we were like 40th or 50th team. And Andrew was so patient with me because obviously he was ready to keep going and you have to stay with your team. Um, but we basically got better and better, or I got better and better as the day went on and we finished ninth. So we had a brilliant day. Um, yeah, and it was um, that was um, uh, a really good fun experience. And um, Andrew phoned me up again this uh, February to say he'd gotten really unfit and needed to go. So we're doing the um, Glencoe Marathon in September. Casually, as you oh, no, do. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've only done a couple standalone marathons and I've never done a trail one. So I'd come across the event last year and thought that sounds fun and it's hopefully happening. So he's entered on a stage day race, the Cape Wrath Ultra, next May. And I said, well, we can do that as a, a little thing that we can do together on the way. He did suggest I do the Cape Wrath Ultra, but I have no interest in that. 400, <laughs> 400 kilometres of running in eight days doesn't float my yeah, boat. Yeah, that's really far. Um, have you found the transition from turning up at races as a pro professional athlete compared to a normal person or like a normal entrant? Has that been different? Has that been strange or is that fine? Um, what well, I mean, I've not done many races since I stopped. So I did the Keltland race for, for work two years ago, which was which was brilliant to do, but quite stressful because it was different. It wasn't what I expected because obviously there was other pressures that I wasn't used to. Um, so yeah it it will be because obviously i'm not fraser the athlete anymore i'm just fraser who might want to do a triathlon and that's fine um but um yeah i mean i i'd like to say i'll be fine with it but I, yeah I, I, i'm not sure how many more races there'll be we'll see you know I, I mean i'm sure i'll want to do races in the future and hopefully i'll be fine with it and you've been doing lots of adventures i've noticed <laughs> so like for example this week you just casually decided to cycle all the way up to the kelp man yeah um how far was that in three the i think 371 kilometer ish roughly my my uh, my computer very annoyingly stopped at 340 kilometers but anyway i mean it doesn't matter it was a long way it was a long way um and um yeah it was and it was pretty much on you know i was supposed to be i, I thought I, well i was going to be driving with a friend or getting a lift so that was um about a week's notice but um but it was fine i knew it was it was it was just myself and a friend sean we we did it and um it was Sean's idea. He wanted to do it anyway. His wife was driving his his car there, and he was quote unquote racing his wife, which um, she did laugh and say she didn't leave till half past five, and we'd left at five, and she still beat us. So she thought that's we didn't try hard enough. But no, it was good fun. It was it's a bit fun. brutal. I know she's, <laughs> she's got away with words. It was no, it was it was yeah. She caught us at about Garve, which is you know we were in the midst of a block headwind and literally groveling at about 18 kilometers an hour so we were glad to see her but um we did we resisted the temptation to jump in the van so can we expect you to be doing more crazy adventures like that this oh uh, yeah maybe one or two it depends on how crazy but no it's quite fun doing something that's just different and it's not a race number and it's just something that's like uh um, blair's got a really good phrase he always talks about creating memories so i quite like that well, i do like that it's brilliant so it's just just doing that Okay, so I thought now, if you're happy to, we'd move on to some kind of hot topics that yeah. are going about at the moment. So I'd love to know your thoughts on some of these. Do you have a top three for the Olympics? Oh, male or female? Both. Um, I, I mean, it's a, it, I could, we could both just shout numbers and names and they could all do well because it's just nature of the Olympics, isn't it? And you could throw a blanket over them. I think the difference with the Olympic Games is versus watching the WTS is it's easy to forget that the Olympics is actually not technically as strong a field as most races normally are because, well, look at the British and American women, for example. You've got seven of those women, I think, occupy the world's top 10. 
so they're not all getting to go. So straight away, the Olympics is just not as deep a field as, as, as other races might be. So that's always an interesting factor. Um, um, so I think on the women's race, I'd love to see Flora Duffy win just because I think she's an amazing athlete and um, I just think she would be a great person to win. Um, hope, you know, time will tell. Um, certainly her run in Leeds would indicate that she's very, very fit. So hopefully she stays fit and healthy. Um, and then, you know, obviously it's always amazing to see one of the British athletes do well. So, I, you know, it, it would appear that, you know, Georgia Taylor Brown hasn't raced yet, whether that means she can't or is just saving her powder, I don't know. So hopefully she's fit and well and she can race. Um, and, well, not can race, but race to her potential. Um, and then, yeah, you're always going to have a wild card. And I, I can't even, I, I, you could name five other athletes. One of the Americans, you surely will probably be on the podium too. And then in the men's race, um, again, it's hard to look past somebody like Vincent Louis or, um, um, you know, form athletes like that. But um, I, I, again, the heat plays a huge role in that race. And I guess just depending on the dynamic of how it, whether it comes together or not. And obviously, if it does, we saw what Alex Yee was able to do last weekend in Leeds. So that would be amazing. Um, I think it's good that we don't have a sort of Brownlee sort of strangulation of racing anymore because it's just getting a bit boring. Um, I mean, they're fantastic athletes and I think it that you know johnny be you know has come into some form so hopefully but he they, they race as a when the races appear it's a completely different dynamic and um in some ways i feel for johnny because he's you know as much as he's very very capable racing on his own i don't think you could argue he's ever quite raced as well without alistair there as he did when they were both in the peak of their fitness so um we'll see but his his win a couple weekends ago in italy was certainly very impressive um and then you know you could you know there's the, there's any one of the three norwegians could medal and you know the, but there's the, the belgian there's a lot of very very good men in that field i think especially with covid there's been people who haven't necessarily raced yet who we haven't seen on the wtcs yet or who have been away on training camps or who haven't necessarily shown their form. So I think going into Olympics, there's potentially going to be quite a lot of dark horses. Mm. We don't necessarily know where everybody is, where Abs they are in their absolutely, fitness. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's going to be a very interesting race. Yeah, and it's not far away. Not at all. Um, and another interesting topic, Lucy Charles Barkley. So she is really mixing it up at the moment. She is, she's well, she's just raced in Leeds and she came fifth in her first, well, her first short course race. And then went on to be to come first in Eton Dorney this weekend as well mm -hmm. in a long distance race. So, w where do you think she's going at the moment? I mean, I was amazed watching the race, and um, I would hope that after Hawaii this year, she focuses on Paris because what we saw was just incredible. So, um, I mean, I'd be the first to admit I didn't imagine she'd be able to do what she did. So, um, hats off to her. She's clearly in. Uh, an incredibly unique specimen, which we've obviously seen from what she's done in long course racing. But to be able, I mean, that is her first, you know, it's not just her first, I mean, technically it shouldn't have been allowed. You shouldn't be able to race at that level in your first race. You should have cut your teeth in the lower leagues, as they say. But, but you know, British Triathlon obviously were able, by nature of it being a home event, they had um, additional space and they filled it with her. So, you know, fair play to her. She took it by the scruff of the neck and, and, and used her, her opportunity. So, they won't now turn her down if she wants to do more. Absolutely not. Um, moving over slightly, we're going to go to tennis. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the recent top in tennis, but do you think the changing world of social media and sport is something that takes away from athletes being able to focus on purely being athletes and doing sport? 
Yeah, to answer, yeah. I mean, there's two sides to every story, obviously, in terms of um, you can see it from both ways. But I mean, I, I just feel all the, the negative publicity that came out of of her wanting to have, you know, it, it just why she couldn't just have been allowed to do what she asked to do is beyond me. I think, you know, it just would have been a much nicer spin on it. And I think it's, it's hugely backfired, from my opinion. So, you know, I think had um, had that been handled better, then, you know, we would still have had an athlete who was able to play in the tournament as she would have wanted to do and been able to have wishes respected. Um, you know, it's, it's sports terrible for being, we've always done it, so we'll always do it. And because you've always had to do a press conference, therefore we've always got to do a press conference. But, you know, why? Why can't we have a change? Um, you know, it's just... It's just a thing that obviously has always happened. So um, hopefully it breaks a mold. So now we have some questions that have been sent in. The first one is, what do you consider to be the performance that you are most proud of? Um, I mean, I was, uh, I, mean I, I, I was lucky that I won a few races and they were all um, bar one in the UK, the bigger races. I won Ironman South Africa 70.3 once and that was, that was really cool because I, you know, not that I felt that I had to win something outside of British soil. It was fun to be able to do it as well because I'd, by that point I'd been training in South Africa for a few years. So it kind of felt like a second home um, and had a really good race that day. So that was, that was a, a race that I really remember quite well. Um, um, and then the, the third race, the third win at the same year, so later that summer, so that was in the January, and then in the June I won Wimbledon for the third time. Um, and that was just probably one of those days where, I mean, had anybody been on the start list, I'm sure I could have given them, I just had an amazing day, which was cool. You know, I just had a swim bike run, that, and by that point I knew that course really, really well, so, so that was fun. It was just a day where everything came together? Yeah, I know it's very cliche, but it did, yeah, it's one of those probably never happened since. And, Okay, next question. Will we see you cycling the world, rowing the Atlantic or anything like that? No, no. I mean, um, um, through, um, through, uh, through work, I've met Mark Beaumont a few times recently because he works at the company a reasonable bit and in huge awe of him and what he's done doing that. But I just, you know, for example, what I did last, um, and we did have that discussion at one point, Sean and I, we thought, you know, what we did wasn't as long as what Mark did for 79 days in a row to that. That in itself just made me think, well, you know, one one day was, you know, I was, you know, exhausted the next day and he was doing that day in, day out, day in, day out. So. Yeah, it's, it's mighty yeah, impressive. Yeah, and it isn't until you sort of give yourself a small, a small taster of it that you realise quite how, it's easy to just see numbers on a Strava or, or you know, or, or watch a video and sort of, you're a bit numb to it, but when you sort of give it a, give it a go and realise, that's pretty hard. <laughs> that's actually really difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, how do pro triathletes generally get funded? Um, multiple ways. So when you're doing ITU and short course racing, then you hopefully be good enough to get funded through the um, national federations. So I was lucky. Uh, I used to get a little bit of money through Sports Scotland, but I was never quite good enough to move up to the um, the next level, which would have been um, the British British triathlon level of funding, which is you know it's still all lottery funded. But you know that's how short course athletes hopefully hopefully if they're good enough they get onto the um, the system and then they will um, they're essentially salaried so they, they they know they have an income every month and then they got all their ancillary support around about it so they don't have to want for anything you know nutrition physio whatever medical needs they might need so that's obviously the first port to call and then when you move over to longer distance racing you you don't have access to that because you're essentially a you know a privateer um, or you know a, a sole trader or whatever you want to think about it as and um, you um, 
you know, primarily you've got three in course, uh, three income streams. You've got prize money, which is the obvious one. You do well enough to win some, and then you hopefully get sponsors. And then those sponsor contracts will hopefully come with a base salary, and you'll earn money that way. And then they will have bonus incentives. So let's say, you know, top three at a race will give you X, Y, Z. So you start adding up. So if you do well in races, you've obviously got those three ways of picking up money. And that's how, you, you know, any, any top 70.3 Ironman athletes that you see racing, that's how they're earning a living. And so does that become quite, can that become quite stressful as well if you're not necessarily performing as well as yeah, you can? Yeah, of course, because contracts usually are only one year, maybe two years. You never get contracts in more than two years. So, so they're, always, they're obviously always running out. And it's particularly over this last two years with, you know, people have lost a whole year of not being able to race. And yeah, so difficult. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, it's like lots of things in life. And what do you think is the best advice you could give to junior triathletes? Um, I mean, obviously, it sounds really boring, but just try and and just try and enjoy it and have have fun doing it rather than get. It's really easy to get caught up in, you know, in the pool. You look at the clock and you have to see numbers, and I have to get this time, and I have to have you know actually. You know, there's nothing wrong with just going and swimming and just getting the session done. And it's very difficult to see it through that lens when you're doing it because you see your pals in the lane next to you swimming faster than you or are you better than you did last week. Or So I think that's a really easy mindset to fall into. So if you're somehow able to just go, just going swimming today and if it's a good day, that's great. And if it's a bad day, then tomorrow will hopefully be a good day. But that's that takes time to learn. So um, I think, you know, then that, that just... Um, um, fuels what I think is the main thing with anything in sport is consistency. If you can have one amazing day, that's brilliant. But actually, I'd much rather have ten average days than one brilliant day and three days in bed because I've tried too hard. Um, so yeah, I think if you're able to be, and then obviously that rolls in. If you can do week after week, and then weeks become months, and then you know, I always say I'm, I'm good friends with Tim Don, and, and and his idea was if you can just have. Um, you know, day after day of good days rather than every now and then having a champion day, then, then you're, on, you're on a good train of thought. So yeah, consistency is definitely a, That's good, a good buzzword, advice. I think. Yeah, consistency is key. Yeah, it is. It sounds very sort of boring, but it's, it is. And any athlete that's done well, they've, I guarantee you, they haven't not had 10, 12, 14 weeks of consistent training. You know, it's, it, it, lots of times it's just not really rocket science. It's just, just do, do the work. And, you know, just chop wood, carry water, that old one. So I'm getting a wee bit of conscious of time. So we're going to wrap it up there. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much to you. Thank you for your time. Thank no, you for thank coming you for to join me. us. I hope that you have all enjoyed that fabulous episode with Fraser. He is one of these athletes that you could chat to forever about his story and his memories in sport. If you fancy keeping up to date with some of Fraser's adventures, he is at Fraser underscore Cartmel on Instagram, or you can obviously find him on Global Triathlon Network. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please be sure to leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. It really helps us to know if you're enjoying the content. If you want to stay up to date with new episodes or upcoming guests, then give us a follow on Instagram. We are at Sporting Roots. A massive thank you again to Scary Vore for allowing us to use their fabulous music on the podcast. And another thank you to Fraser for joining us and sharing his sporting roots on today's episode. That is all from us this week, but make sure you stay tuned to hear all about our next guest's sporting roots. Mm -hmm.